0: Hi, this is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. We're a local D.C. show focusing on foreign and domestic policy, national politics, and culture. Today, we're speaking with Diana West. Diana is the author of The Death of the Grown-Up, How America's Arrested Development is Bringing Down Western Civilization. Diana also wrote American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character, We're going to be speaking today with Diana about national security. You're not going to want to miss this. We'd like to recognize Make-A-Wish Foundation. Make-A-Wish America serves a unique and vital role in helping strengthen and empower children battling life-threatening medical conditions. You can learn more about them at wish.org. Welcome back to Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Here's her guest in the hot seat. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, wonderful to be with you, Gail. Diana West is the author of several books, including The Death of the Grown-Up, How America's Arrested Development is Bringing Down Western Civilization, and another book which is more pertinent to our discussion today about how to make America safe again is the book American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. And Diana, when you wrote this book, did you realize that the idea of Russian election hacking would be such a part of this presidential uh, contest that we just saw occur.
1: Absolutely not in the sense that such such a threat was not on our radar at that time. but in terms of Russian interference, Russian influence, it is a standard, presence and has been ever since the Soviet Union came to be uh, 100 years ago. So in that sense, it's old territory. And in the other sense, it's, it's new technology.
0: And your book, American Betrayal, goes back through the history of the 20th century and really concerns itself with Soviet infiltration of the United States government. Is that correct? Right, right. And this is where things get so interesting, because most of the people extremely exercised
1: over the thought that the Russians somehow affected our election that got 63 million, nearly 63 million Americans to vote for Donald Trump. Um, were the same kinds of people from the same political parties and institutions who spent the past century telling us that there was no such thing as Russian influence and Russian interference. So something else I believe is going on here that we really need to tease out to, to try to understand what's going on. And I would sort of, I would sort of preface my, my own thoughts on the subject by saying I am agnostic as to the source of the DNC and Podesta emails that WikiLeaks WikiLeaks published. I don't know where it came from. I am open to all arguments at this point, given enough evidence and also theoretical credence. Um, That said, it is very much, I believe at this point, a political operation that we're watching, intending to set a narrative as to where the, the leaks came from as a means of undermining the Trump presidency to be. So that's kind of where I see things. And to me, the source of these emails is actually immaterial because what's important about them is the contents. And what we've even seen from the uh, intelligence community, so-called, report, most recent reports, WikiLeaks are accurate. WikiLeaks have great ver- veracity. There's no problem here, no, no, no uh, ascension that there is, that, or declaration that these are forgeries These are held to be true things, and for that, I think we need to delve into the actual materials that we have before us rather than argue over the source, which again becomes, I think, something of a red herring as to what we have before us. Do we have a fight over where the leaky leaks came from, or do we have a big investigation ahead of us as to what they lead us to?
0: Right. And does that recall kind of a Sherlock Holmes story about the dog that didn't bark? Because on your website, dianawest.net, you talk about, you have a a piece called Cut to the Russian Chase, and you have this picture of the Washington Post. And uh, just on this point that you were just making, the real story, isn't it, that the content in the emails was true. And yet the Washington Post in this picture that you take and you have a little red box, it's on the inside, not on the front page. And the the Washington Post article says the report noted that none of the files passed to WikiLeaks contained evident forgeries. And isn't that burying the lead? I would say so. But you see, the way this whole um,
1: obsession at this point has been set in terms of how we discuss it is what the source of them, what the source of these WikiLeaks, tens of thousands of WikiLeaks is rather than what they say. And when you actually put them together with all of the other tens of thousands of WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks released emails that and and also Hillary Clinton's server emails, which were FOIA'd and released in investigations, um, all manner of, of, of other evidence, which we have not had a look at. And I'm thinking of the Anthony Weiner laptop revelations, which are supposed to be hundreds of thousands right. of of. Of emails. All of this is a picture of Democrat Party corruption, collusion with the media, which I think is a big point here to remember in terms of why the media is not reporting the story straight, because so much of this does not reflect well on their collaborations with Democrat Party officials and Hillary Clinton officials in their coverage of this whole thing, which is stated in these WikiLeaks. So we're, we're looking at a, a, an array of evidence that is an incredibly important trove of primary source documents for journalists and historians to consider. But what we're also watching is what I believe this is a political operation to make this trove of information somehow radioactive. This is something Vladimir Putin did. And therefore, any sort of wandering around in it or stories that come of it are somehow an American engaging in some kind of Russian disinformation campaign. So it's a very screwy thing that we're looking at, and it frankly has been kind of driving me a little crazy. And the the piece you mentioned <clears throat> made me feel a lot better having written it, Cut to the Russian Chase, because this stuff has really been kind of frying my circuits and watching this as someone who's avidly interested and continues to research Soviet and Russian influence on American policymaking and American institutions, which never interests these same people as I mentioned. This is this is such a newfound um, interest of these people, but there are ways to understand this as beyond just trying to keep America safe. The theme of your program today, so very right. important. And-
0: and I think uh, it's so funny, you, you mentioned that about the media, all of us who are either old enough to recall, or we're historians like you, we remember that the media has treated revelations very differently. Take, for example, the Pentagon Papers, which dealt with very sensitive military information related to the conduct of an ongoing war. And the New York Times had no reservations about publishing them, even taking it all the way to the Supreme Court to try and and, uh, have that kind of information out there. And yet they don't seem to have the same standard. They're, they're focused on where the information came from instead of the very damning, uh, revelations that the information gave. And, and do you think that the media does itself a disservice by having different standards based on the content and who it, uh, reflects poorly on, uh, for, you know, whether or not they care where the information came from?
1: Oh, well, it it reveals itself as being a moribund puppet, really, of the powers that be. In the case of the Pentagon Papers, which was mainly a narrative of the, it was mainly an internal history of the war. And it it was very embarrassing because it revealed so many failings of the conduct of the war. And this served their political purposes, not necessarily pure journal. I mean, I'm very glad that it was published, but in terms of what we look at in the arc of journalistic publication going to today, now we're seeing the same media, the same big media and conservative media to a great extent as well lockstep um, lockstep against uh, releasing embarrassing or delving into embarrassing or corrupt or or even criminal practices that may be released by this same trove of documents. And it's just a very strange thing when you see, I mean, especially as a journalist who in olden days would get one such document from, from a, an official who was leaking, and it would become a huge story, regard this trove of documents as what the Washington Post recently called, WikiLeaks, the radical transparency group. <laughs> Which is just a weird thing for a journalist to, or a media right. organ to, to, to call a trove of primary source documents. they are absolutely not colored by anything. they are what they are right. right from the right from the sources and so this is such a strange thing so you see them you see them really as a praetorian guard of the Ancien regime. The Democrats are out, the elites are out, the, the Trump populists are in. Um, certainly that was the, that, that's the, the power dynamic at this point as we're poised to see Donald Trump take the presidency. And, and I think this is where we're going in terms of trying to make these kinds of revelations which should continue. I mean, we should see what's on that Anthony Weiner laptop. We should see all the emails. These belong to the American people in the sense that these are public officials doing the people's business and it is, they have no right to keep it a secret. And, and this becomes the strangest role to watch the media attempt to seal it up. And then with this added fill of, of assuming and declaring and stating that, that, that Vladimir Putin is behind all of this, I mean, frankly, and this is the point I sort of come to in, in my piece, Soviet and Russian intelligence does not set out to advance Kremlin interests or change the world by letting the sun shine in. Right, and by that I mean by revealing truthful documents. What they're in the business of doing is forgeries and coercion, blackmail, disinformation practices to to shift and taint and twist and push and and advance their own interests. And they've been epically successful over over a century. So this, if if it comes from the Russian, again, I'm not going to say I don't know that it didn't, but if it did, it would be a very unusual thing for them to actually give us true documents as as a as a a as a tool of strategy. Um, so it, it, the whole thing is very strange. My own hu- supposition is it may well have come from within the government that these were leaks, not hacks. But again, the I US am agnostic government. on that, the U S government. But again, to me, what's interesting is the content and what it says and what needs to continue to be investigated In terms of the Clinton Foundation, and and indeed the the Clinton, the Clinton, uh, the Obama administration's very troubling um, attitudes towards Russia. I mean, this has all been forgotten in terms of John Podesta's own links to companies, remuneration, stocks, and so on uh, of an energy company named Joule, which was sat upon by the same board with Russian oligarchs. I mean, this is all very troubling. The transfer of uranium stocks that that took place during the Obama administration. Well Secretary Clinton was uh, at the top of the State Department, um, which transferred twenty percent of u s uranium stocks, which really made me think today, as we see news from um, the AP, that um, the, uh, the America and Western allies have actually agreed to transfer uranium to Iran. <clears throat> pardon me, as a means of keeping the Iranian nuclear deal so-called going. And my, this uranium is said to come from Russia. So my first thought was, well, does this uranium actually come from the USA? Because the sale of Uranium One, the Canadian company – included 20% of United States right. uranium stocks. So really where is this uranium going to come from that's now going to Iran from Russia via Uranium One? I don't know, maybe. I mean this is the kind of thing that really needs to be understood and and teased out and investigated along with the source of the hacking. I'm saying I say let's just go to town. Let's open up some fantastic new investigatory committees in the House and the Senate and look into all of this. The right. Clinton Foundation, the hack So-called or leaking, you know, let's put it all out there because there cannot be enough sunshine. And we have lived with secrecy and secrets and government elites of both parties thinking that they had the right to hold all these secrets from us. And that is the really, for me, the crux of this entire matter.
0: Right. And I think when we reflect on your book, and I hope everyone will go out and buy a copy and read it, because it is just a fascinating history that everyone should know. And it's not something that is taught in schools or something that it, there are documentaries done on. In fact, the documentaries are, are alleging just the opposite. But something that I really thought was important about your book was that you analogized is, essentially what went on with the Soviets in the United States during the 20th 20th century, to what is going on now. And when I speak with people who are happy that Trump was elected, a lot of times the number one thing on their mind is is that instead of this countering violent extremism project of the Obama administration to deflect, and uh, I would say to go away from transparency on the true threat to the American people, the American ideals, the, the nation, uh, it's this idea that Donald Trump will actually call the threat to America what it is, radical Islamic jihad. And you have certainly done a lot of writing on that gotten a lot of blowback on that. Do you think this administration will be able to successfully communicate that to the people and take effective action against that when our guard has been completely let down over the last eight years? Well, it's a
1: really good question because of the last part of it, especially in terms of how our guard has been let down really much more than eight years. I mean, this has been a long time coming in terms of True. the elimination of our very conception that we can have an ideological foe, period, and a foe within, an enemy domestic as well as foreign. I mean, a lot of this infiltration, the subversion, first communism, also Islamic, um, has been going on in this same climate of the sort of erasing the whole idea that we even have an enemy, period, anywhere in the world. I right. mean, this is sort of where we are kind of existentially. And I think there's another point here. And, and you know, it's, it's a lot to put on Donald Trump. He has the most amazing stellar instincts. yes of any polit- well he's not a po- well now he's a politician <laughs> he's he <is>. a president <laughs> but of any of anyone um, aspiring and certainly reaching high office i have ever seen certainly in my lifetime and it just you know does he are people with that incredible canny understanding going to be in his administration are they going to have you know that sort of uh, bench in the various agencies and departments, I don't know. I hope so. Um, can people come up to speed? You know, it's kind of the more information out there, the better. And I would also add that what we need to start understanding also is that the the Islamic uh, 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 threat and the communist threat, in terms of ideology, are very closely aligned. And we've also seen, if we think about Iran, we've seen trips made to Iran by people like Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, um, the late Fidel, late and Fidel Castro <laughs> talking about how they have common a common foe in the United States, how they have common um uh, uh- in other words, it's not a marriage of convenience. They have a common outlook on the world. They have a common foe. They have a common sense of, of of global destiny. And so, in that sense, they are ideological twins. Even if there are differences, there are so many things aligning them: the collectivism, the 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 notion of of dictatorship, of rule. You know, the way these these uh, organizations are both totalitarian, or these ideologies are totalitarian totalitarian. These types of things are very important to understand as, as sort of twin ideological threats. And, and this, again, has also been erased from our understanding because we're not really allowed to have this conversation. And one of the right. things that, that brought my eye to Donald Trump originally was his own fearlessness in terms of bringing these issues that were supposed to be settled, and I'm making quotation marks here, <laughs> settled, erased, dispensed with, never spoken of, whether it was immigration, whether it was Islam, uh, these types of things were not supposed to be things that Americans debated and actually deliberated on. And that is why his candidacy, I believe, took took such incredible flight because people were suddenly thought, wow, politics is important. It's actually about our human destiny and existence as a a nation. And so this is kind of where we are with this marvelous and incredible opportunity to sort of come back from the dead, which I think is where we would certainly be heading had Hillary Clinton been elected in November.
0: Certainly, certainly. Well, Diana, thank you so much for your time today. Do you have anything else that you want to add about either of these topics? well, just, just in
1: order to just, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners are already into this and onto this, is just really watch the media for these patterns, for these evidence-less declarations, for also bowing to the voice of authority, which is the most dangerous thing that, that citizens of a democratic republic can do and can see in their own media. When you see reporters and newspapers and colonists taking the word of, quote, intelligence, community, or anonymous officials therein, as gospel, you really are in trouble, and you need to do your own digging and, and keep looking for the real story, because this is a tool of, of, of submission, to use, to use a phrase, um, and this is something that's very, very dangerous that we all need to be on guard against.
0: And how do you think citizens can take that extra step of investigating it further? I think that's an excellent suggestion. How how would an uh, average normal person who is not DC centric, uh, not involved in, in these types of conversations, but wants to be informed? How do they get themselves informed?
1: Well, that's a good question, too. Of course, I would say starting out at my website, DianaWest.net,
0: yeah, Absolutely, I
1: have made a lifelong um, practice of trying to debunk the media and fake news before it was called fake news, of course. <laughs> um, but, but actually, the Internet is our greatest tool. It, it is an amazing resource. And of course, you need to be d- discerning. But frankly, the record of, of blogs and so-called fake news sites and all the rest are, are, are better, if not the same as what we see in our own supposedly professional um, media world, but I think that that it 's a matter of of yes, doing your own diligence, reading your own WikiLeaks you know, reading these emails, looking at people who are analyzing them with links back to the original i mean it 's very important not to just take news columns that don 't have evidence that you can check yourself as gospel. And so it becomes a matter of spending some extra time and developing um a kind of a stable of sources. I mean I know I have in terms of where I go to to look for um interesting commentary and news. It's it's very rarely I mean I look at what the the mainstream media is talking about roughly, but very often it isn't giving me actual news or right. actual information. So I'm looking at different blogs. If you want to look for, uh, what's going on in Europe, you have to be reading Gates of Vienna. Um, the blog, if you're, you're looking for, uh, information about the WikiLeaks and, and the, the Russia story, you've got to be developing some other sources, but also primary sources. And it, it becomes, um, a matter also of, of, of spending some time and reading some history books and trying to understand what's really going on here and giving yourself some, some real context. But not just taking face value the big media that just think they're big feet and they can just say whatever.
0: I couldn't agree more. Always go to the, the primary source and take everything you read in a newspaper or on the web with a grain of salt, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Diana, thank
0: you so much for joining us, and we wish you the best in the new year. And uh, we look forward to talking to you about these issues again in the future.
1: Wonderful. If I could make one ad, I do have a blog roll at my website that contains some very good sites um, that would be considered helpful. So, just a place to
0: start. And your website again is DianaWest.net. Yes. Excellent. And I hope everybody will go there and pick up Diana's books too. I see you can get signed copies on your website of your books even. Yes. bonus. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you again so much, Diana. Thanks, Gail. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Music provided by local band Trio Caliente. Visit their website at triocaliente.com or sample their music on iTunes. We also want to give a special thank you to Hillsdale College. We are recording today's podcast at the Kirby Center on Capitol Hill. Hillsdale College is located in South Central Michigan and you can learn more about the college at hillsdalecollege.edu. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and hear me every week on iTunes. This is Gail Trotter, right in D.C.